Um, so, Father, we want to bless your name today. We want to say, as we said earlier in the prayer meeting, that, Father, we want the divine alignment that you have from heaven to earth. We invite you to come into our lives. We invite the truth. We invite your perception of righteousness. Father, in Jesus' name, we say, give us your truth, your life. Show us who you are as we worship you today. Let's worship him. Even when there was no reason for hope, Abraham kept hoping, believing that he would become the father of many nations. For God had said to him, that's how many descendants you will have. And Abraham's did not, faith did not weaken, even though at 100 years of age, he figured his body was as good as dead, and so was Sarah's womb. Abraham never wavered in believing God's promise. In fact, his faith grew stronger, and this he brought glory to God. He was fully convinced that God is able to do whatever he promises, and because of Abraham's faith, God counted him as righteous. God, I just ask that you would increase our faith to believe, God, and that our faith would go stronger and stronger and stronger. God, that our faith would not waver, but God, when you say it, we would believe it. And God, that we would be able to stand on your word, just like Abraham, the father of our faith, stood on your word, even though it looked humanly impossible. And so God, our situations sometimes look humanly impossible, but God, I just ask, increase our faith, God. Increase our faith in what you say. Allow our trust and our hope and our faith to be built upon you alone. The essence of faith is to see what cannot be seen with a natural eye. And all through the scripture, we have promises around this so that even in the worst times of your life, you can have hope. Even when it seems like everything is getting worse, you can still have hope. Even in the midst of what the Bible calls an evil and adulterous generation, you can have hope. Because it also says, where sin abounds, grace does much more abound. And so even though you don't see it, in the places where there's sin, there's an availability, there is a resource, there is a well of hope. So we say in the name of Jesus, let hope spring forth here today in our hearts. Hope for our lives, hope for the economy of this land, hope for the political landscape, hope for the salvation of loved ones, hope for the blessing and stability of our children's lives, hope for the future. And even when things are sh being shaken, we can have hope because the Bible says everything that can be shaken will be shaken in order that those things that can't be shaken might remain. And so when God is allowing shaking to come into your life, it's just to show you what is unstable. It's to isolate what is unstable that is not born of him so that you can lean into what is stable. So, Father, we want to say today, you are my rock. You never change. You are the same yesterday, today, and forever. 
Oh God, my rock, my strength, my life. Let the grace of God fall like rain in this room. And let weary and broken, broken arms and disjointed shoulders be put back into place. Let the arms that hang down be strengthened. God, I pray to the spirit of suicide. God, I pray to the spirit of suicide that's in this room, that spirit of suicide that, that is in our community, the spirit of suicide that is, that is in our country, God, and I pray that it's broken right now, God. I break it, it has no power over us, God, in Jesus' name, God, and I say hope. Hope in those dark situations. Hope, hope, hope for the hopeless, God. And I pray right now that you would start to, to reach into those areas and you would begin to shift and you would begin to change and you would begin to restore what's been broken and restore what's been lost. We speak life and we speak hope, God. We speak hope. I want to speak to that hopelessness, and that hopelessness comes in so many different ways. But, you know, when you're driving a car and you're going and you're driving and suddenly you realize that for the last hour, hour and a half or two hours, you've been driving in the wrong direction, you know, that feeling that comes over you of, of waste, of vanity, of all is vain. You know, there's something of that in our lives where we're going down a particular path, we're going down a particular way, and then you get to the end, you realize you are not obtaining the fruit that you thought you were, you were going to get. The outcomes you were hoping for are not there, and you realize, whether you know it or not, you've actually gone out of the way. But I want to say that there is a hope that, causes, that can cause that moment to turn for your good, that God can restore God can restore, God can restore for every wrong decision. God can bring you back to that place so it seems like none of it was wasted. That that journey that you went out of your way, even that is a foundation for God to establish something in your life. Even that, it establishes in you something about a sense of what it feels like when you're going your own way so that you don't go your own way the next time and that earlier in the journey rather than an hour in or two hours in or we may be talking about years and months in terms of lives that somewhere we'll say hey wait a minute this feels like that so i pray right now not only will there be a breaking of that hopelessness off of our lives but there'll be a residual sense of what it feels like when you're going down that wrong path, when you're going your own way. Father, we say in the name of Jesus, let no uh, wayward journeys be lost. Lord, we want to know what it feels like when we're moving into something that is not you so that we can quickly, quickly turn around. Father, establish in us that sense of what it feels like when we are going astray. And may it, Father... Act as a guard for our hearts. So in the name of Jesus, we say we break the power of suicide over the emotions of people in this room and in this community. And we say let a spirit of hope break forth. Let a spirit of hope break forth. Let a spirit of hope break forth. 
Let a spirit of hope break forth. Come on. Our God reigns. Thank you, Lord. Father, we just thank you that you've broke the power of hopelessness today. That, Father, that your word is true, that you have said that you would never leave us or forsake us. And, Father, I ask for great grace to pour down upon those today in this house. I pray, Father, that your mercy would carry us on. That, Father, that this would be the day that it's all changed. Lives are changed. Families are changed. Rejection is broke off in Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. We thank you, Lord. So we declare that this is the day the Lord has made, and we rejoice and be glad in it. You know, the influence of hopelessness, even if it is not at the level that you would call depression, is prevalent. Hopelessness, the inability to dream, the inability to imagine beyond a certain point, it's a part of the manifestation of the kingdom of darkness. It's really summarized all of Satan's goal. If he can't get, keep you from getting saved, then he'll keep you from being effective. And there's this little video going around on Facebook and whatnot, and it has an ant that's there, and the, and the guy with a black marker draws a circle around the ant, and the ant is walking on this white paper, but suddenly that circle becomes an impossible barrier. And you watch the ant go right up and turn around and go to the other side and the other side. It, it can't suddenly, just because there's a line, it cannot go past that. And we know looking at that, well, that's an illusion. There's no real barrier there. Well, the spirit of hope would say the same thing that there's no real barrier there, that the barriers that are there are in your mind. The barriers that are there are in your emotions, the blockages that keep you from destiny, from dreaming, from believing, the things that lock you into a lifestyle that cap your possibilities. These are spiritual in nature, and they are false. Now, the truth is, if the enemy has his way, he'll start to build structures in society around those walls in order to lock people in. And in Canada, we don't have that very much. We have it to some degree. But if you go to India or if you go to other places where social class is a condemnation, you are forever locked into a, a uh, you know, the, the, the whole limitations have been now bred into and built into the culture. And what the kingdom of God wants to do is, A, here, bring some freedom, bring some life, bring some manifestation of the kingdom of God so that those structures that are being built right now in our society to lock us into a smaller place through philosophies, political ideas, concepts around morality, all these things are meant to bring us into slavery so that they cannot advance. But more than that, that God would give us a manifestation of his presence that would, could literally go into a land like China or Guatemala or any place where these things are more firmly entrenched and unravel them and break them wide open. So Andrea is going to come and pray right now just 
release a declaration against that hopelessness, sometimes it's not discernible. And you may not even know that you're under it, and you can be. Andrea is going to come. So, Lord, I pray that scripture today, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. And, oh, God, I pray that we would see the evidence, uh, the evidence of the hope that you can bring, of your truth and your faithfulness, and that the lies would be shown for what they are, and that the barriers that are false, <laughs> oh, that the barriers that we've created in our mind that says you can go this far and no further, that they would fall for what they are, that they would be revealed as the lies and the corruption that they are and the fakeness, and that we would see the truth and the light and the way and the way to walk, and we would see your faithfulness and your hope and your presence, oh God, and we would look up and see you and not look down at what's around us, at this fake world, which is not our reality, but we would look up at yours and see you and you and the reality that is you, oh God. We would see your faithfulness. We would see your faithfulness. Do you guys remember a number of months ago, uh, I talked about this very thing and how I saw it was um, about the baby blanket. Do you guys remember this? And some parents, when their kids were young, would teach their kids to stay on this baby blanket and discipline them in a sense of, as long as you stay on here, we're good and don't go off. And pretty soon you've got a child trained to stay on this blanket. There is no fence, there's no barrier, there's nothing. There's just a blanket. And these kids stay there. And I felt the, the tying in of what the enemy has done. He's kind of given us a blanket and said, stay in this place. You have freedom as long as you're in this realm, but do not go any further. And the word that was over that was containment. And this thing that's taking place right now, there's containment that's settled into many of our lives that we're coming up against right now. And I want to read a scripture from Joshua. I won't read the whole passage. This is just the, this is the beauty right here. Joshua 1.9. Have I not commanded you? Be strong and of good courage. Do not be afraid, nor be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. Now God is commanding, be strong and of good courage. And God cannot command us to do something that we do not have the ability to choose to do. God has given us the ability to choose to be strong and courageous. And he promises in that moment that as we become strong and courageous, as we choose that and not be afraid, the Lord our God is with us wherever we go. Now that containment, that barrier that has held us has got to go. And today, I believe, could be the day for many of us to come out of that containment and have that lid lifted. Hopelessness has settled because we've recognized that there's a containment in our lives that we cannot overcome. And so I would ask all of us, let's stand and begin to exalt God. Begin to lift up praise. In this moment, we declare this containment shattered in Jesus' name. There shall not be a barrier any longer in the name of Jesus. And whatsoever stands against us shall not stand in the name of Jesus.
containment be broken now in the name of Jesus. Now begin to choose strength, strong and courageous, strong and courageous. It is time to overcome by the blood of the Lamb, the word of our testimony. We shall overcome. Hallelujah. We exalt God. We exalt you, Jesus. Break us free in this moment in Jesus' name. Come on. I, we exalt you, God. We exalt you, Jesus. Hallelujah. Containment be removed. In Jesus' name. In Jesus' name. Now, if you think historically about the body of Christ, and if you think about the Reformation, the Reformation was a restoration of spiritual truths. But you know what? It, you know what, the, what it does is the the effect of the release of spiritual truth. It released a whole generation into natural, physical, financial prosperity because it took certain limits off the brain and somehow it birthed something called the Protestant work ethic. Now, it wasn't, that wasn't the goal, just to tell you you can work, but what it did is a byproduct of God's thinking is there are barriers in your mind that you don't even know you have. That there just was this inability to appreciate that, wow, if I work harder, I can produce. You think, well, were they stupid? They weren't stupid. It's a spiritual blockage. They just couldn't see it. And suddenly when that wave of light came in through the Protestant Reformation, thousands and thousands and thousands of people came into a new ingenuity that they never knew was possible. That fatalism, that lid, that blanket of darkness came off of their minds. And suddenly innovation, the ability to to give oneself to a tax, to a vision, to an idea, and believe that it will produce fruit suddenly come into their lives. It wasn't just spiritual. It, re, it, it, re, it brings a natural blessing. In any land where there is not a natural blessing, you'll see spiritual bondage. So, Father, we say, God, make us free from barriers we don't know we have and change this generation, Father, with more of you, more of you, more of you, we say in Jesus' name. Can you say amen? Hallelujah. Father, I want to thank you for uh, the word, God. Uh, you said you, you sent your word and healed them. Jesus said, now you are clean through the word that I have spoken to you. So we ask today, Father, that your word would be a lamp unto our souls. Amen. Father, we ask that you would illumine, illuminate, Lord, the hidden things of our heart and establish us in the truth. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So there's an old parable that uh, Jesus shared. We know it very well. And I, I usually uh, would not cite one of these things, but it just, um, you know, sometimes you, 
you sort of hear parables or certain Bible stories and you attach to them a certain significance and it just sort of stays there. So sometimes I hesitate to reference certain ideas because it brings us into some kind of conventional thinking that locks us into a perspective. Nevertheless, there's a key truth in this particular parable and it was about, you know, building your house on the rock. You know, uh, some built on this and this and this. He said, uh, you know, the man who builds on the rock, uh, when the storms come, you're going to survive. It really ties into what the Holy Spirit was saying to us this morning about, you know, uh, the, the, this getting established in hope and allowing God in different seasons of your life to come in and shake the things that can be shaken in order to show you the difference between what can be shaken and what cannot be shaken. And as it turns out, uh, strangely enough, that the things that can be shaken have their roots in you. They have their roots, their origins in the things you determine to do that you think are good or that you want them or whatever. So there is this uh, compatibility between the things that can be shaken and the things that are born of you versus the things that cannot be shaken and the things that are born of him. And so the wise man will simply just begin to say, well, if I'm going to build, I want to build properly. And if you've ever uh, done something poorly and regretted it, uh, you know something of the need for that kind of wisdom. Well, uh, we are at a time today regarding our Christianity where we need to be building with wisdom, building with truth, foundational truths, especially as Christianity has increasingly become a cultural expression of, an, of, of vague ideas that are somewhat mentioned in the Bible, and, and they don't have the power. They, they are being shaken right now. And in some ways, I have mixed feelings about that. I have mixed feelings about our cultural Christianity diminishing from the public, uh, public view, from the, from the marketplace, because uh, to me, that in itself is evidence that there's not longevity in that. There's not permanence in that. So whatever used to undergird these things that affected a culture is not there anymore, not being presently lived out by a generation of the church. So then the features that were uh, popped up in our culture are now being overcome. They're being shaken. So what does that mean? We, it means we have to go back and find what is that wellspring, what is that, that fountain of life, that caused generations to believe in God, that caused generations to celebrate this way, that caused generations to view marriage in a particular way, and to view sin in a particular way. What is that unchangeable wellspring of life that we should be really about that, is, that does not diminish, uh, that actually has a power to overcome and does not yield? So... Um, the story that stirred my, my heart this week uh, in the news happened to be about this uh, uh, pastor that was being defrocked. Anybody hear about that story this week? Anyway, it's an interesting story. You have a, a pastor who's been serving in a certain denomination that shall remain nameless for a number of years, and this pastor does not believe in God. She is an avowed atheist, uh, so she doesn't believe in God, but she's a pastor, she doesn't believe in the Holy Spirit. She doesn't believe in Jesus or God's intervention in our life, which begs the question, well, what does she believe in that would qualify her to function in this capacity? I mean, I wouldn't go to a doctor that doesn't believe in medicine or treatment. 
right? You know, uh, I, I, I wouldn't go to a, uh, uh, what do you call those exercise people that didn't believe in, in, in training. You, you know, well, what are you about then? Uh, I'm here about encouragement. You can do it. Um, and, and, and that's sort of the empty vagueness that comes with human, humanism is, is this notion, vague notions that resemble in somewhat di- distant manner biblical concepts. For example, they'll throw around in this world of humanism and, and wannabe pastors that are atheists. You'll throw around ideas like love. Well, it's all about love. Love. Man, I hate that kind of talk. Because even though it is about love, the Bible says God is love. So if God is love, then you cannot know what love is unless you know God. So whatever version of the word, you know, you have set your mind upon, it is not the original version as built upon, as referenced in the Scripture. God is the defining, His essence, His being, is the defining work an end of the definition of what love is. So if you don't have God, you don't believe in God, whatever, you're using the same word. But whatever that thing is, is not the same thing. Now, I'm using that sort of as a lightning rod because we are facing an issue in our culture today where, particularly around the theme of love, that love is starting to mean something it doesn't mean to God or, and something it should not mean to me as a believer. Love is being made to be this tolerant thing that just accepts whatever. And people are pointing back to, well, Jesus was all about love. Yes, he was all about love, but he wasn't about the kind of love you're talking about that has no rules. He wasn't about that kind of love. You know, uh, well, well didn't, didn't, didn't he just forgive people? Like, didn't he just, you know, say, hey, I forgive you? And that was it? Well, let's examine that for a second. The woman who caught in, you know, in adultery, right? She's caught in adultery, and the Pharisees are coming out, and they're going to kill her, they're going to stone her, and Jesus does that thing. He says, let him who is without sin first throw the first stone. And, uh, and he goes on that thing, and so, fine, that's great. All, they all leave, and the woman's left there by herself. And he says to her, he says, woman, where are your accusers? And she said, nowhere. And he said, he said fine, well, I, I forgive you, whatever. But this is what he said, go and what? Sin no more. Go and sin no more. So the forgiveness and the love is there, but it's not there by itself. It is there with an expectation of a morality, an expectation of that there is a righteousness, that it, there is behavior that is acceptable, and there is behavior that's unacceptable. And even in Jesus' tolerance, he still was clear about that line. Now, it wasn't an issue right then because the woman wasn't arguing to say, listen, there's nothing wrong with uh, what I did. There's nothing wrong with adultery. There's, I should be able to sleep with whoever I want. These rules are just hemming me in. They're stealing away my freedom, my autonomy. Now, if, if she had taken that posture, I guarantee you, Jesus would have taken a different tack. Because he did that with the Pharisees, and we're going to see that in a minute. The Pharisees, he took a different tack because they said, there's nothing wrong with what we're doing. 
The reason why Jesus had that approach that seemed, you know, harsh and cruel and intolerant was because when you're building in people's lives with truth, love, love is, is, you know, the idea of forgiveness and love and expression and accepting you is built on an idea of righteousness that's already accepted. If that idea of righteousness is not mutually shared, Jesus doesn't say, yeah, go, I love you, go do whatever you want. Because he was all about doing this and not doing this. And all you have to do is read the Bible to see that that's true. But this notion has entered into our culture that love is indiscriminate tolerance. That is not what love is. Love is not indiscriminate tolerance where I just accept you. I accept you. You know, and this idea that if I just accept you enough that that is, that is going to cause you to change. No, no, no. You can't find that in the Bible. You can't. It's not there. So, let's look at what is there. Okay? Isn't that great? This is... This is foundational. See, what's being eroded in our culture is that a foundational understanding of love, of righteousness, of holiness. And when Jesus came to his day, he was trying to establish that same foundation, and he was trying to take it away from a, hippo, from a system that was hip, full of hypocrisy and pretentiousness. And people who pretended to be good and thought they were good were actually murderers and thieves and controllers, and, you know, they were all of those things, but they were parading around as if they were good. So Jesus was tearing down that system in order to establish another. But nowhere did he say, yeah, do whatever you want, and God will still accept you as you are. Because, again, nowhere is that in Scripture. Let's look at this. John. Gotta love John. Gotta. John. Chapter 3, verse 16. Beautiful passage of Scripture. You go to a lot of football games and whatnot, you're going to see that posted up in somebody's sign, John 3, 16. And this is the kind of limited notion that the world, you know, the soundbite world of the secularists latch upon. God is love because it says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. For God did not send his Son into the world to be condemned, but that the world through him might be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe in him is condemned already. Let's, let's stop there for a second. Okay, so God sends his Son into the world. Uh, God so loved the world that he sent his Son. But then, you know, see, that's what God does. God, God just loves. God, give me a hug. God just loves you. And he does, but he loves you in order to separate you from that which is causing condemnation to fall into your life. And that's the difference. You can't stop with the one verse. You actually have to read all of them. And he says, listen, God did, and we, I love this. I love, you know, people who, who want to kind of go to that tolerant, let's, everything is okay. They say, you know, Jesus didn't come to condemn the world. Yes, because it was already condemned. What does it mean? Well, <laughs> I don't know how to illustrate that. I was thinking of some ways, but uh, it'll take too long. But the, the thing is, 
Jesus was coming, and his message was built on a previous idea, and the previous idea is that what is here is corrupt and broken. And so the message of love was to free you from what's corrupt and broken. However, if you begin to take the line, which the Pharisees said, which is, it's not corrupt and broken. What we're doing is good. What we're doing is right. What we're doing is God. Then Jesus comes with a different tone says, and starts to cut into it to reveal the fact that it is corrupt and broken. So we have all these moral issues around our culture today, and people are saying love is just tolerant. Love just says, you know, God loves everybody. That is so meaningless. God loves everybody. That means he's giving everybody an equal chance to come out of condemnation. God is giving everybody an equal chance to come out of sin. God is giving an equal chance of everybody to, to align to his righteousness and participate in an eternal kingdom. But love in that context, not saying anything goes. Again, nowhere in Scripture are you going to find that. This is not brain, I mean, uh, 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 this is not uh, rocket science, is it? It's not brain surgery. Yeah, that, that one. I knew there was something there. Uh, are, you, are you with me on this? So let's look a little deeper in, into these verses because this is so very significant. When God is building in your life, he's building on a rock, and then you put something solid on that rock and something solid, and things sit on one of that. That's how you build something that's stable. And, uh, and so if when he comes to your life, he's starting to build, and he wants, well, God is about love, but we've got to put that love thing on another foundation. It's meaningless all by itself. And, of course, this is the problem. This is why we have a moral system that's uh, bobbing around in the seas of wherever because there's no foundation to it. It's not rooted or locked into anything. So, for God so loved the world, etc., etc., and he sent him so that the world would be saved. He who believes in him is not condemned. Doesn't that suggest that he who does not believe in him is still condemned? I don't know. Seems that way to me. Because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son. And this is the condemnation. Oh, here we go. This is kind of important, I think. It's the very definition of what is God's reason for condemning something. You know, when a city comes up to a building and they put a sign on that says condemned, they have a criteria by which they do that. You know, they're, they're, you know it's not random, and it's, it's, it's not uh, meant to be punitive. <laughs> it's meant to be, listen, this is not sustainable. This thing here that you have, this edifice that you're living in is not sustainable. It, it's falling around you. Uh, we're helping you see that it is falling around you. I mean, it should be common sense that it's falling in around you. But in case it isn't, we're going to actually come and say, put a sign there and say, you can't live here anymore. And so uh, what is the criteria for condemnation? 
This is the condemnation, that the light has come into the world, and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Wow. For everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light, lest his deeds should be exposed. But he who does not do, who, who does, but he who does the truth, oh, sorry, comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they are being done in God. When Jesus came to the Pharisees, this is what he challenged them with. He challenged them with the fact that he was bringing light and they were balking at the light. And therefore, because of that, they are under condemnation. But Jesus didn't have to say, I condemn you. No, in fact, the message itself is a message of love and redemption, saying you don't have to remain condemned. But, well, you know, well, as soon as you say that's bad, you're condemning people. No, I'm not. As soon as I'm saying that's bad, if it is in fact bad, I'm helping them see that they're going to sink. I'm helping them see that they're working at something that's not going to work. Right? You see a business, a friend in business, he invests in, you know, uh, I don't know, something, some technology that's passing away, and you see that the culture, the whole marketplace is moving away from something, and he starts to pour all of his money into that passing fad. Uh, what do you, you know, maybe this is not a good idea. Don't step on my dreams! Ever get that response? Like, you're just condemning me. Nothing I do is right. Yeah, but it isn't. This is not going to produce a good financial return for you. Videos are going out. Flip phones are not in. You could still use a flip phone, but everybody knows where area you came from. It's passe. It's 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 the past. It's gone. It's coming to an end. It's not condemnation to say to you, this brings death and this brings life. That is love. That is love. That is love. For God so loved the world that he saw the world condemned. He saw the world doing its own thing, caught up in its own definition of good. And he said, I'm going to come and I'm going to save the world by establishing my definition of good, and that's how I'm going to save them. But those who reject God's definition of good are still condemned. That doesn't mean we hate them. Is that the same, to equate hatred with disapproval of your activity because it's bringing death to you? You hate me because you don't accept, accept my drug use. You hate me because, uh, you know, you, you don't like the fact that I'm eating everything bad for me. I'm going to die of a heart attack. What, where is that? doesn't make any sense at all. But this is what our culture is accepting. This vague idea of love as tolerance, where there's no rules, where there's no right and wrong. And who are you to say? Why, well, I'm not anybody to say, but he said... He said, now, 
Anyway, I'm not going to, as, as Jesse put it a couple of weeks ago, I'm not going to hedge. I'm just going to hit. I'm going to hit this thing. All right, so let me read another passage. Because in Jesus' day, he wasn't faced with, uh, with a system that was glorifying sin like we're seeing. We're seeing a system that's rising up that's glorifying sin and tell us, tells us what right have you to say this is detrimental to my happiness. So Jesus came in his day, and what he was coming to is people who were in sin. But here's the thing. There was a sense of an agreement around what sin was. And so when the adulteress was confronted, her defense was this was not sin. So which enabled Jesus to go to, right, to the love stone. Okay, we're putting into place some stones we're building in your life. Here's the love stone. I forgive you. But why was it able to be implemented there? Because she was willing to repent. She, already, she was recognizing that the behavior she had in her life was damaging. You can't love, add love and acceptance and tolerance in that sense to somebody who's embracing, by definition, sin and saying it's okay. You have to go back a step and you have to deal with that. Which is what Jesus was doing with the Pharisees. Because to the sinners, they're, yeah, you know, yeah, we know we're bad. We've been trying to be good and we keep being bad. So they're not arguing with his definition of good and bad. They know they're condemned. And they, but they just don't have a way out. The Pharisees were condemned, but they didn't believe they were. He took a totally different approach to them because he had to establish what sin was, what righteousness was. And he had to show them, you don't have it because their, their belief was that they had it. So this is what he says to them. This is a great passage. You should write this down. You should memorize this. Right, Paul? I saw that smile. Luke 13, 2 to 5. And Jesus answered and said to them, he's talking to the you know, religious leaders and people around, he says, do you suppose that these Galileans were worse sinners than all other Galileans because they suffered such things? I tell you, oh, I should have read the verse before. He said, I tell you, no, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. So there's these Galileans who had been killed in an accident. And in the culture of that day, there was this really false righteousness system that sort of everybody was trying to, you know, appear to be good and on God's side. And the Pharisees in particular believed that if calamity happened to you, it was an evidence that God was particularly mad at you. And, uh, and so the evidence to them that God was smiling on them is bad things weren't happening to them. So when bad things happen to me, well, that's, they must have sinned. So, and Jesus didn't actually come to say, no, that's not true. He didn't actually take away that. He didn't deal with that. What he said is, no, they sinned, but you guys have all sinned equally. What he said is, no, they're, they're condemned and they died, but let me tell you, you're no better. His message was, all have sinned and fallen short of the, the glory of God. There's none good. No, not one. And so he's hitting the Pharisees because you guys are sitting there. You believe that you're good. You believe that you're okay. You believe that God's smiling down on you. And that's the reason you have this dominant position in the culture. But I'm telling you, 
you are already condemned and you don't know it. What happened to love? Why didn't he come with the love message? I forgive you because they hadn't repented yet. You have love is built upon repentance. Once you turn, once you say, once you cry out, I don't, I don't want my own notion of good and evil. Uh, because and, you, and the sinners are locked into this where they, they can't stop sinning. They can't get free. But the Pharisees are locked into it, but they're, try, they're doing the good of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And Jesus is saying, you're all under death. And the biggest barrier to death, I mean to, to life for you, is that you won't even admit that what you're doing is wrong. This is the condemnation that light has come into the world, but men loved darkness rather than light. So when you parade in the streets to advertise your sin, to say, there's nothing wrong with this, that's what the Pharisees were doing. They built a celebration, a culture on everything they were about, and they believed it was good. And now we're doing it in a secular way with a culture that has this vague notion of love. And the gospel is meant to destroy that. So, are you with me? So, it goes on and says, On those 18 on whom the Tower of Siloam fell and killed, do you think that they were worse sinners than other men who dwelt in Jerusalem? I tell you, no. But unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. What is he saying? He said, you're all condemned. I didn't come to condemn you. You're already condemned. But if you don't know that, I'm going to let you know. Here's another one. John chapter 8, verse 34 and 43 Again, Jesus is talking to the Pharisees, religious leaders, the lawyers. Jesus answered them, most assuredly I say to you, whoever commits sin is a slave of sin. And a slave does not abide in the house forever, but a son abides forever. Therefore, if the son makes you free, you shall be free indeed. He says, I know that you are Abraham's descendants, Abraham's descendants, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak what I have seen from my father, and you do what you have seen from your father. Well, that must have been tough. They answered and said, Abraham is our father. Jesus said to them, if you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man who has told you the truth, which I heard from God. Abraham did not do this you do the deeds of your father. Then they said to him, We are not born of fornication. We have one father, God. And Jesus said to them, If you were your if God were your father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, nor have I come of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech? Because you are not able to listen to my word. <laughs> ah, let me finish with this. The Pharisees were desperately fighting against a line that Jesus was drawing. And the line was, 
this is what's approved, this is not approved. Not to say you are eternally locked into disapproval, but to say there's a way out. But it begins with acknowledging this line. My line. Mine. God's saying, my line. Not the one you've imagined, you've created through your, you know, and, and, and what's difficult for us to transpose this to our culture is that the Pharisees were the good people. I mean, they were, they were abstaining from every form of unrighteousness that they could tell, except that they were embracing the worst kinds, which were all in the heart. Envy, covetousness, pride, murder in the heart. So, today, we are faced with a culture that's to the contrary of what the Pharisees did. They're embracing sin and they're celebrating it. And they're saying, you have no right to tell us this is wrong. And so when you actually come with a message that this is wrong, they hate you. And so somebody got this bright idea, well, we shouldn't tell them it's wrong. We should just love them. Actually, the sequence of Jesus' ministry in Jesus' life was not is not that way. He went to great lengths to those who did not agree with his definition of right and wrong, righteousness, good and evil, to say this is the wrong line. He didn't gloss over that. He said, you know, you Pharisees, I accept you because, you know, God accepts you. And he just has a plan for your life. And, and he, he, he wants to bless you. And God wants, you know, God's not the author of destruction. God's the author of blessing. And he wants you to have life and life, have life more abundantly, you Pharisees. If that was the tack we need to take with a different form of righteousness, then Jesus would have taken it. He didn't take that. Why are we taking it? Why? Because we don't want to be hated. We want people to like us. At some point in our culture, you're going to be called to either endorse and celebrate sin or you will be persecuted. And they killed Jesus for it. And if you've looked online to anybody who stands up and anybody who even hints about the standard of the God of righteousness that we know, they are hated. There's a spirit of murder that comes out. Now, people say, well, yeah, that's because they're saying it the wrong way. Really? Did Jesus say it the wrong way? Is that why the Pharisees killed him? You know, Jesus, if he just had had a little more tact, if he just had, you had, you know, uh, thrown a little more, you know, sort of more cuddly words in there instead of you whitewashed sepulchers, full of dead men's bones, twice dead. You know, if you just had toned down on the rhetoric, it would have been okay. Now, I mean, I'm not ignorant of the fact, and here, here I'm hedging now. I'm not ignorant of the fact that the church has been hypocritical. I know that. I know that. But that message of the church's hypocrisy is being used to leverage you into guilt so that you compromise your message. I want to tell you right now, I don't hate anybody. I don't hate those that celebrate sin. I don't hate 
those that are trying to redefine our culture that we've had for 2,000 years and take away from its Christian roots. But I am aware that it will lead to destruction. And I am going to keep saying, if we do this, it's going to lead to destruction because A, God is not for it. But B, there are laws in, built into creation that will bring physical, natural destruction on sin. It always does. So, let's not take that tack where we say, you know, Jesus, you should have just modified. You just should have, you know, it's not what you said, it's the tone. You know, sometimes maybe our tone's wrong. I know my wife is on me all the time. You know, sometimes your tone is wrong. Okay, I'm working on that. But it doesn't change the message. And I can own the fact that I'm maybe as not as loving as I ought to be, but that doesn't change the message. How do, and here's the question. How do you inform people that God has condemned their lifestyle and all sin and that all of creation, all mankind is locked up under condemnation? How do you lovingly tell them who resist the basic essence of the message to the point where they're willing to kill you to shut you up. How do you say that more lovingly? When really, when push comes to shove, they hate the message and they hate the messenger. That's a really, that's a tough sell. And I guarantee you, it won't do it any better than Jesus did it. So at some point, and he said to them, the reason you can't understand my message is you can't hear my word. You are rejecting my word. So the, all the talk about, well, if we just say it different, right? Because that was the underlying tone, and I'm sure some political pressure came on Jesus. You know, some of the Pharisees are really close, you know. If you throw them a bone every once in a while, you probably get more of those guys on your side. It's not about that, Jesus said. Listen, I'm not, it's not about that. It's about doing something in their hearts that, that separates them from the evil that's trying to destroy them. And I love them too much to not be a manifestation of that truth. So what does that mean for us today? Well, there's a couple of implications. The first of which is... is you, we can start asking the question, do we love people? And that question is always being asked right here. Because the answer is, yeah, we could probably use some more love. But the rightness of the message doesn't change and is not diminished because you lack love. Because you are a sinner who's just been freed from condemnation and you're growing in this thing called the kingdom of God. But the, what got you in is that you begin to acknowledge that line that God had written. So you pointing to that line, even if you do it imperfectly, is not really the issue. And don't begin to believe that. Should you point at that line better? Yes. But the line is still valid. 
So we are needing to grow in our ability to love one another. And that's what the life of the body is about. That's where you find out if you actually love. You live in proximity with one another. You jostle one another. You bump up against one another. And you, you see what comes out. Right? But on the other hand, we, as we are doing that, we are increasing in knowing who God is. And in so doing, he's coming into our lives and doing what he did with the Pharisees. You know that thing that you think you're doing that's so great? Okay, here's the motivation for that. It's like, uh, okay, I repent. Oh, that's good. And if you don't repent, what does God do with you? Well, increasingly, it will pour on the strength of the message till you realize that that thing is the reason you're not advancing, which is what we want to do with sinners. Not to say, you're condemned, you're going to hell, good for you. Say, you don't have to go to hell. And when they say there is no hell, then there's no starting point for the message of love. So, Father, I pray that you would give us wisdom on how to build and manifest your kingdom in this culture, in this day. Father, that the message of Jesus... The essential message around the heart of man that con this is the condemnation that men love darkness. That, Father, that we will be aware that that is the thing that divides between us and more light, us and more freedom, us and more love, but it divides the world between them and more freedom, them and more love, them and more health. Father, more of you, less of us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So just as I'm closing, let me encourage you to read the words of Jesus because you are getting the message of this culture every day in the media, in TV shows, in movies. You're, it's being shoved down your throat constantly, and you need to find out because all these words that we use, Love, righteousness, good and evil, they're being redefined in our culture. And we have to go back to God's idea of these words. Otherwise, the language becomes meaningless. And the language of love right now is becoming meaningless, especially when you can have an atheist person preaching love who doesn't even know the God of love. But here's the beauty. As this message gets clearer in us, it's going to powerfully confront the world around us. But there will be a cost to that. You will not be popular. You will be famous for the wrong reasons. And you will become infamous. So, get ready. How many of you want to say, oh, Jesus, your kingdom come? Because that's what this is. Lord, your kingdom come. Lord, your kingdom come. Your kingdom come. Amen. All right.